A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Mark. In the fourth chapter, beginning at the first verse, the parable of the sower. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching he said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. And Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Let us pray. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. January 1983, my wife and I hadn't even married a year yet, and we went to the Holy Land. We'd never been before, haven't been since. But while we were there, we visited a kibbutz. Now, some of you may know about kibbutzim, that's the plural. They're communities, usually of agriculture. Several families are involved, and they lived on principles of socialism and Zionism. And today in Israel, they amount to almost 40% of the agriculture of the whole country. If you work in a kibbutz, you're a kibbutznik. So we were visiting the kibbutzniks. When we got off the bus, there was a field there. And in that field, there was everything Jesus describes in the parable of the sower. There was trodden down path. There were rocks. There were weeds and thorns. There was good soil where the vegetables flourished. And the point is, Jesus used things that people were familiar with when he told his parables. They didn't have to use imagination to figure it out. They had seen these things. They knew what he was talking about. Now, in Ohio, from whence we come, we only have three seasons during the year. The first is winter. The second is construction season, sometimes called orange barrel season. And the third is Ohio State football season, <laughs> OH. <laughs> anyway, this is about construction season. Now, I know many of you have driven down the road and endured some construction. And it was usually a nuisance. And it often took too long to get from one place to another because of all this construction going on. But I don't know if you've ever seen how they reseed the ground after the construction is completed. They have these trucks with these big machines on them, and they have hoses on them that are 12 feet in, in 12 inches in diameter. 12 feet, 12 inches in diameter, and it spews out this green, blue-green kind of substance. It's grass seed, and fertilizer, 
and water for the most part. And as they spread, some falls upon the road, and some falls upon the rocks, and some falls among the weeds, and some falls on good ground where grass grows. Point being, you don't have to do too much imagining to see the things that Jesus is talking about. Such things exist in our world too. Jesus taught in parables, and he told his disciples why he did that. Basically what he was saying was this. If you don't have open hearts and open minds, you can't hear what he's saying. Unless you're open to the word coming into you, you can't conceive of the kingdom of God. Those who have ears, let them hear. You have to have good ears. Then he does something that he doesn't do anywhere else in scripture. He gives the disciples an explanation of the parable he's just taught, the parable of the sower. But he describes it more like an, an, an allegory or a metaphor, such that everything is representative of something else. So he's the farmer, and the seeds are the words of God. And the path is where the word falls among people who are so closed and so hardened they can't hear it at all, and the birds, who are Satan, come and pick all their seeds up and take it away. They don't get anything. Then there are the people of the rocks, really in rocky places where there's some soil. The seeds fall there and they spring up quickly, but they have no roots, so they fail. These are people with hardened hearts who hear the word of God and are pleased by it, but don't have the depth to be able to perceive and understand what it means. Then there are the thorns. These are bad influences. These are things that offer temptation or tribulation or difficulties or worries, and they choke the seed so it doesn't bear any fruit. But then there's good soil where the word of God flourishes. I have a bit of a problem with this explanation. I'll tell you what I mean. In Jesus' explanation, the trodden down soil and the rocks, at least, are people. And they're, they're, they're people who, if you want to be good soil, you might tend to be judgmental towards those who are not, or who you think aren't. And I've seen that. I've seen Christians be judgmental of each other because they thought some were holier than others. I have an alternative explanation. I think that each of us, individually, is a garden for the word of God. And all of us have all the characteristics of the field Jesus describes here. We've all been stepped on. We've all been walked on. Sometimes it feels like we get walked all over too often. And that pounds us down, and that takes our dignity away, and it takes our confidence away, and, and the word of God can't flourish in an environment like We've all been hurt. Sometimes our hearts have been broken. And we've felt some serious pain in relationships or in, in the loss of a relationship. And we swear in our souls, that's never going to happen to me again. Been down that road before, ain't going down there anymore. And we become hardened more than healed in the process. We guard ourselves against things that haven't even happened to us. And sometimes we're surrounded by thorns and weeds. These are the bad influences of life. 
These are people who lead us astray. These may be people who lead us astray. These may be addictions. These may be complications of life. These can be illnesses. These can be things that distract us from the goodness of God. We also all have good soil. Every one of us has good soil where the word flourishes. The things grow and expand. And holiness and happiness happens. So what do we do? I think there's something that we can do for all of these parts. Where we've been stepped on and trod down, we need to dig that soil up. We can get in there with picks and shovels and loosen the dirt. That may mean standing up to some people and say, you're not going to do that to me anymore. Stand up with confidence and face the troubles and move beyond. It may be hard to do. It may take courage, but you can do it. Rocks are different. Rocks are hard. Now, you could crush rocks and make soil out of them, but it would take you an awful long time. The better way is to get rid of the rocks. When we were driving through the countryside in England, we used to come to these fields that had small rock walls all around them. And what had happened was, <clears throat> the farmers encountered the rocks as they were trying to plow the fields, so they took the rocks out and they put them on their property line. And pretty soon, by the time they did the whole field and got all the rocks, they had a complete wall around their field. So now the rocks had a purpose. They defined the field. That's what I want you to do. Go into those hurt places. Go into those hard places. And lift them out and say, I protected myself from this long enough. Put it on display. That's going to help define my field. I'm going to be open to new growth and new life. Of course, you also have to nurture your good soil. And here's how you do that. With scripture, with prayer, maybe occasional fasting. With the fellowship you find at church, and the camaraderie you find, and love you find in your families and in your extended families. That's how you nourish your soul. That fertilizes the good soil. So it sounds like we have a lot of work to do. And there is no doubt that in this parable by itself, there's enough for us to work on in our spiritual growth for the rest of our lives. But there's more. Turns out, this parable is part of a greater passage. It starts in Mark chapter 3, verse 13, and it goes to Mark chapter 6, verse 13. So Mark 3.13 to 6.13. And in it, there is an elaborate discussion of who Jesus is. There are teachings about the kingdom of God, and there are demonstrations of Christ's miracles. So four parables four miracles. The parables are interesting. Three of them are about seeds. This one is about seed, the sower. There's one about the seed growing secretly, and another about a mustard seed. And then the fourth parable is about a lamp. You put on a lampstand instead of under a basket, so it lights the whole house. These things teach us about the kingdom of God. The purpose of parables is to illustrate for us and present to us the kingdom of God. But the miracles are powerful. In the first miracle, the disciples are out in a boat and a storm comes up on the sea, the Sea of Galilee. And they're afraid they're going to be drowned. They're scared to death and Jesus 
He's sound asleep. So he wakes up, and they said, don't you care about us? And he raises his hand, and the storm calms immediately. And they say to each other, who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? Then they get across the lake to Gerasenes. And here's a man full of demons. He's been demon-possessed for years. He's big and strong and scary. But as Jesus approaches him, he falls down on his knees and says, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Jesus has power over nature, and he's the Son of God. The third parable is kind of an accidental third miracle, almost accidental. Jesus is just walking along, and there's this woman who's been sick for years and years and years. She's seen a bunch of doctors, and none of them have been any help to her. But she believes if she just touches his cloak, she'll be healed. If she can just touch something, just touch Jesus, she'll be healed. And so she does it, and she is healed. And Jesus turns to her and says, Daughter of Jerusalem, go, your faith has healed you. It's even getting close to those things that have touched Jesus, like apostolic succession in the church is good enough to heal you. The fourth miracle is for Jairus. Jairus comes, is a leader in the synagogue. He comes to Jesus and said, his daughter is sick, and will he please come? And while they're on the way, his servants come and say, sorry, your daughter is dead. And Jesus said, no, she's just sleeping. And when he gets to the house, everybody says she's dead, and he raises her from the dead, and they're astonished. Jesus has power over death. We had nothing but this gospel. We'd have everything we need to be good Christians. Everything we need to know about Jesus, everything we need to understand the kingdom of God, and what we need to do about it. This is an interesting thing. I, I have always felt that it was Mark's first draft. This was the first thing written. But there's nothing in it that precludes Jesus being gone. Jesus could have been there when this was written, this might have been written to the disciples as they went out two by two. Jesus himself may have had input into this section of the gospel. That's my theory. I call it Jesus' gospel. If we had it, we'd have everything we need to be good Christians and have Christianity, except two things in particular. We wouldn't have Christmas, and we wouldn't have Easter. So the question becomes, could we have Christianity without Christmas or Easter? I've been frustrated, sometimes bewildered, and I'm sure you have, at Christmas time with all the commercialization that goes on and all the celebrations being done that seems to have nothing to do with Christianity. And we're fond of saying, Jesus is the reason for the season. Last year, a Lutheran church nearby gave a sign like that to its parishioners Red letters on a white background, Jesus is the reason for the season. And they stuck it in front of their houses, and then they didn't decorate the houses at all. No lights, no wreaths, no Christmas tree, nothing but the statement, Jesus is the reason for the season. I wish they hadn't done that. I would like to say it differently. Jesus is our reason for the season. That is certainly true. But there's other things going on here. They've been going on for thousands and thousands of years. 
in prehistoric times, human beings witnessed the changing of the seasons. And most of us are descendants of Europeans. In Europe, winter was cold. And the nights got shorter and shorter and shorter the colder it got. Until the nights were very long and people longed for light into the darkness. And so at the darkest night of the year, they would have festivals of light, which, from, which in ancient times was fires. They'd light fires and bonfires and they torches and they would dance and they would give thanks for the longest night because after that, the nights would start to get shorter and shorter again and the days would get longer and longer. So they wanted light into the darkness and they celebrated something else. In the Northern Hemisphere, it's cold during the winter. So cold that if you got lost out in it, you could die. So people didn't go in it anymore than they had to. They stayed home with their families. So winter was quality family time. You play with your family. You ate with your family. You did things with your family because that's pretty much the safest and easiest thing to do. So winter was family time. Something else. It was impossible to field an army in the winter in ancient times. The winter would become more of an enemy to you than whatever your enemy was supposed to be. Napoleon Bonaparte found that out the hard way. He tried to invade Russia in the winter. And the winter destroyed his army. So, we have peace on earth, we have family time, we have festival of lights, all of which we do at Christmas time and during Christmas season, none of which has anything to do with Christianity per se. So people in the winter do have a winter festival. And it's during the Christmas season. So both things are going on at the same time. It's not that they're bad or wrong. They're just doing something different. But if we didn't have Christmas as we have it, we'd have something very similar. We might even have a magic elf who came at the darkest night of the year and gave presents to children. We could certainly have the story of Scrooge and the Grinch and the Nutcracker Suite and a lot of the other things that we have during the Christmas season that are part of the celebration. What if we didn't have Easter? If we didn't have Easter, we wouldn't have the cross. We wouldn't have the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Could we have Christianity without that? Well, let's look at what we would have. We'd have the forgiveness of sins. Jesus teaches forgiveness of sins in this passage, in this greater gospel. Elsewhere it says, if you confess your sins, God is gracious and merciful and kind and will forgive you your sins. So we'd have forgiveness of sins. We'd have the divinity of Christ in this gospel. Jesus is son of the most high God. We would probably have theologized an ascension. Because he was a divine, he couldn't die, so he must have gone back to be with God. So what we'd have is Jesus, who lived for our salvation, living, a living Lord, 
lives and reigns with God and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. We'd have most of Christianity as we experience it today. We would not have sacraments. And that could be a problem for some. You may not know there's a Christian denomination that doesn't believe in sacraments at all. They call themselves the Society of Friends. You may know them as Quakers. I know them well. I went to their seminary. And we didn't have communion. We didn't have sacraments. We had no such things. So what I did was, in the summertime, I went to a Benedictine monastery where I could take some seminary courses where we had sacraments every day. We had sacramental living and went to communion every day, went to church prayer five times a day. So I went to the opposite extreme. I needed it. So we may need some sacraments. We might also have baptism, even without the story of John the Baptist. Because Jewish people always had ceremonial washings. If Jesus was at Qumran, and most of us believe that he was, then Jesus did a ceremony, a ceremonial washing every day. And any of us, if we felt we were unclean for some reason, might be able to have a ceremonial washing. We might even call it baptism. It would be different than what we have, but still might be sacramental. Now, I'm not trying to take away most of the New Testament for you. We have all the New Testament we have. None of it's going away. I am suggesting, however, that sometimes we should take a serious look at what scripture means to us, how we receive it, what's important, what matters, what do we care about. We need to look at ourselves in relation to that and try to become the best people we can be. I'm also suggesting that we can see Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. You hear what the little girl said? She was going to an Easter egg hunt and there was an an Easter bunny there, and she said, rabbits don't lay eggs. <laughs> Be kind to them. They know not what they do. They, they might not realize that what they're celebrating is God's creation. But we know better. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Lord God, we thank you for your word. We love to hear it and perceive it. We want to read it and understand it. Help us to do these things. Amen. I have an assignment for you.